I'm, I'm going to speak again tonight on the promises of God. And I spoke on that last week, and um, I was praying coming into this week about, you know, what are we going to talk about next week, Lord? And I felt like he wanted me to preach another message on his promises. And I realized I've never preached a sermon on the promises of God before um, until last weekend. And so we learned last weekend that there are 7,487 promises of God to us as people in Scripture. And as we talked about in worship today, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says, No matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes for us in Christ Jesus. We talked about last week how that means all the promises in Scripture, even the Old Testament, Old Covenant promises to the nation of Israel. We are spiritual Israel, uh, Paul says in, I believe it's Romans chapter 9. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. It's true believers get adopted into the family of God. We're grafted in with the nation of Israel. Um, Rob gave a word about prodigals, and the Lord was speaking to me this past week about Israel as we were praying for them. Israel is a prodigal nation. They are the nation of God, right? They've went prodigal. They don't, they're still waiting on the Messiah. He's already come. His name is Jesus. So they haven't received him fully. But scripture says after the time of the Gentiles, all of the nation of Israel is going to be brought back to faith. Scripture literally says that. Uh, the nation of Israel will have a revival where they believe in Jesus uh, as a like a majority type of situation. And so all Israel will be saved. All Israel meaning the nation of Israel that went prodigal the Gentiles who are grafted in, us who believe in Jesus, and then the fullness of the nation of Israel. And so we should have a high honor for the nation of Israel, and it's just common sense truth that that land is their land, and they've been there for thousands of years, and the reason there's an argument going on is, I didn't plan to get into this tonight. Here we go. We're on the train. And uh, <laughs> so the Romans hated Ever since Abraham, the nations on the earth have hated Israel. Do you know why? Because of the principalities and the spiritual powers that are controlling the nations that we talked about in our spiritual warfare series. So the devil hates Israel because they're God's nation. And so it's a spirit of persecution, generation after generation, that's, and that's always going to happen until the very end, okay? And so um, there's always, they're always going to be persecuted. We always need to pray for them. Scripture says we need to pray for the blessing and protection of Israel. And I think we need to do that for them as a nation, just as we pray for persecuted Christians. Um, and so, but the Romans persecuted them a few different times. And they, a few different times, conquered Jer Jerusalem and the nation, deported them, and brought in peoples from surrounding nations. And the goal was to eradicate uh, the nation of Israel. That's why they did that. And that's where Palestinians came from. It was surrounding Arab peoples that the Romans brought in. And this, this happened in, I believe it happened in 70 AD. It definitely happened in the uh, second century uh, was the big one where they brought in a whole lot. And from that time on, it's the, then people have been there from the second century who aren't Jewish. So they're like, this is our land. We've been here forever. And now you see why there's, they're fighting over the land. Does that make sense, church? How many of you did not know that's why there's conflict all the time. You all knew it. Awesome. Nobody wants to admit it. Okay, that's all right. Thank you. Somebody learned something tonight. Yay. I felt the Lord wanted me to share that. But that's why we as a church, well, that's why Christians should be praying for Israel, nation of Israel. Um, and 
as well as persecuted Christians. And we should be praying that there's revival in Israel, that they come to Jesus. And by the way, we should be praying for Hamas and Hezbollah and all the Islamic nations that they come to Jesus, right? That's what we should be praying for. So, phew, that was like a total side tangent, but current events are happening, right? And so, um, yes, so the promises of God. God promised the nation of Israel a whole lot. Uh, Psalm 91, we looked at last week, has in 16 verses has 26 promises from God to his people, to his people, which at that time was the nation of Israel. Um, now those promises are yes and amen for us in Christ Jesus. That's what 2 Corinthians 1, 20, ver, uh, 1 verse 20 says. And so um, we learned last week that promises are conditional. So God says, I will do this 7,480 seven, right? Something like that times in scripture. If there's conditions, promises are conditional. Okay. I will do this. God says, if you do this, all the promises are conditional on covenant that we come into a personal relationship, a covenant relationship with him where he is our God and we are his people. But I talked about last week, how a whole lot of the promises of God are, are conditional on other things as well. Because a whole lot of the promises of God are for this life. Things we, not just for heaven one day, but for this life. And if we want to experience the things that God promises, it's not just, many of the promises are not just, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's I'm doing what the Lord says. I'm living how he calls me to live. And he spells it out in his word, what his conditions are. And so last week, Psalm 91, we talked about there was two conditions mentioned. You make the most high your dwelling or your covering. So you live under God's covering, his protection, which means you live in his ways. And you say with your mouth, the Lord is my refuge. And if you do those two things, Psalm 91 is, your, is, is going to happen. God will do it in your life. So it's really powerful stuff. Um, 1 Peter Chapter 1, Peter talks about the precious promises of God. And so we have the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 talking about how awesome the promises of God are. And then we have Peter in 1 Peter uh, 1 talking about the promises of God. And I think it's how important are the promises of God when two of the greatest apostles who wrote much of the New Testament are telling us how important the promises of God are. And so I want to read 1 Peter 1 to, to set up where we're going tonight. It says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and goodness. The, the scriptures say, through Jesus, we have everything we need. So can we turn that into a positive declaration prayer tonight? Do you guys want to do that? All right, you guys alive tonight? I'm taking this off because it's bothering me, so I'm just going to throw that over there. So we have everything we need tonight, and at all times, by the way. We have everything we need. So let's say that together. I have everything I need to do all that God is calling me to do. We have everything we need through Christ. Verse 4, 1 Peter 1. Through these, through what? His divine power his glory and goodness, through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that 
through them, through the promises of God, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. God is saying in his word, in this life, guys, we're not talking about one day in heaven. You know, eternal life starts the moment you profess faith in Christ. Now, this is eternal life, to know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. As soon as you know Jesus, you have eternal life. Eternal life starts in you. And then when your natural body passes away, your spirit is already alive in Christ. And it just passes into eternal, the fullness of eternal life with Jesus in heaven. Okay? But the divine nature starts now. Guys, this is the greatest invitation you will ever have in your life. To participate in the divine nature. The greatest invitation you will ever have is not if by some weird, miraculous way, Taylor Swift got your phone number and invited you to a Kansas City Chiefs football game uh, with her, right? That is not the greatest invitation you'll ever receive. The greatest invitation you'll ever receive is to participate in the divine nature in this life. You can be like Jesus, you can know Jesus, you can experience the living word and the living spirit, the presence of the risen Christ in this life. That's what he's saying. Wow, how do we do that, church? Through the promises of God. And listen to what he says next. For this reason, because through the promises we can experience divine nature, make every effort. Oh, so there's a responsibility on us. Hmm. In a popular American culture where it's like, we can't do it. It's all him and we can do nothing. It's not by uh, works so that no one can boast. It's only by grace. And I would say, yes, salvation and eternity is not by works so that no one can boast. It's only by grace through faith. Absolutely. I would agree with that. But for some reason in America, all we want to talk about is eternity and salvation. And we don't want to talk about how to live the rest of our years on this earth for him. And Peter's saying we can experience the divine nature the rest of those years, but there's some conditions. And so he says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's through the knowledge of Jesus that we can participate in the divine nature that we have all we need. But you know, you can know Jesus, you can know about Jesus, you can have knowledge of Jesus and be totally unproductive and ineffective for him or in him. It's the difference between believing in God and believing God. It's a spirit of unbelief and it's rampant, especially in the American church because of the culture that we live in. And you guys have heard me harp on that many, 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 many times. But the Israelites, God gave them promises about the promised land that they're currently in conflict over. He said, you know, they were only supposed to spend about a year in the wilderness getting trained and receiving the word of God at Mount Sinai. Because one year after the first Passover, that's when they send the spies. And God's like, all right, time to go. God's plan was one year in the wilderness. And that was training and that was receiving his word and and him setting up a whole nation. 
And to set up a whole nation in one year, God's pretty efficient, right? Uh, Praise him. And then he's like, now let's go in and take the land. There were giants in land. God told them that in advance. They were powerful. They had more people. God told them all that in advance. But he said, I will be with you. I will fight for you. I will send the hornet ahead of you. What's the hornet in that scripture? That's his angels of destruction that are going in to drive out the enemies before them. We were in a prayer meeting one time last year, and um, the Lord was speaking about going into spiritual warfare as a church family. And and I was like, man, that's like kicking a hornet's nest. And God said to me, I have hornets too. (laughs) That's awesome. You guys don't seem as excited as I was when I heard that. I was like, huh? And and that verse came into my mind. I was like, whoa, God's got hornets too. This is cool. This is about to get fun. God promised them, I'm going to drive out these nations. I'm going to win the battles. All you have to do is show up and do your part. But your part was just showing up. If you will show up, God will show off. That's Jehoshaphat's story. You will not have to fight this battle, but march down and face them. Just show up. Just face the challenges in your life in a spirit of worship and prayer, and God will win the battles. God is the one who fights for us, right? It's all throughout his word. And so that's what he was telling him. And Hebrews says they didn't go in. Why? They didn't believe him. Hebrews says because of their unbelief. Unbelief is when you believe in God. They believed in God. They weren't believing God. So we as Christians have to realize all the time. I'm constantly praying every day. Search me and know me, God. Am I not believing you somewhere? Is there some way I, I've, I've settled into the traditions and the rituals and the routines of my life and I'm just going through the motions and I'm not even thinking about it and I'm actually denying your word or I'm not taking you at your word, I'm not believing. Man, I do this all the time and I'm just gonna be honest with you, all the time he's like, right there. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. And so unbelief is rampant in this culture and that's last week we talked about the promises God is saying, I'm just looking for someone who will believe me. Just believe me. Take me at my word. And here's how you believe God and take him at his word. Do what it says. You read in the scriptures, oh, apparently we should be doing this. I I, I was praying this week and I was remembering, and I'm so thankful for our journey as a church. And God's so gracious. He gives you grace, especially when you're ignorant and you don't know anything. He gives you so much grace. But, you know, as you grow in faith and as you know better, he starts expecting you to, to show up and do what you know you should be doing. Um, and I don't have, that's a whole other sermon, but I can preview that from scripture. And I was just remember our, our journey and I was so thankful. I was just expressing gratitude. I remember as a young man getting ready to start this church right after we started this church, reading James 5 and being convicted. It says here, if anybody's sick, they should ask the elders and they should anoint them with oil and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And I thought, we don't do that. That's a problem. If somebody came and asked me, I suppose we would do it, I thought at the time, but we haven't been doing that. The word says, do it. And modern Christians want to get into squabbles like, well, oil, we know now the microbacterial properties and we know this and we know that. and That was really for that time and this and this. And we reason away what God says to do in his word. That's just one example, okay? If the word of God says to do it and it's new covenant, we need to be doing it. 
Take God at his word. That's what it means to take God at his word. So Peter says we need to add to all these qualities to our lives. Make every effort to have all these qualities. Why? Because it's part of fulfilling the conditions. It's part of what it means to live under God's covering. It's to be like Jesus. And when we're making an effort to the best of our ability, let me just tell you right now. You want to talk about the grace of God. You can do the best of your ability and give all your effort. And I'm just going to tell you, it won't be good enough. You will not be able to be fully like Jesus in and of yourself. But if you will do the best you can, the grace of God covers the rest and he will fulfill his promises in your life. That's how this works. It's not perfectionism and it's not performance. I want to be very clear about that. But here's what unbelief does to you. Well, I'm not Jesus, and so I'm going to be spiritually lazy and complacent, and I've never shared my faith with anyone, and I don't serve others, and I don't give generously, and I don't do this, and I don't, I don't do anything except live how I want to live and hope I go to heaven. And that right there is a great way to, if you go to heaven, to go, you, Paul says your whole life will burn down around you, and you'll escape as one escaping through the flames of your burnt down life. He says, let each one build. What's building? The work of God that you're doing in your life. Build with precious materials, gold and silver, right? That represents acts of faith under the unction of the Holy Spirit, partnering with him. Um, whatever is not of faith is sin, scripture says. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So when you do the acts of faith, God is called you to do, you start building faith into people's lives. And you're building with precious materials. You're building something that will last. The Lord's want me to hit on religious legalism. That's why when we, we should not just do the what religious legalist people do, meaning we should not just do the routine. Well, this is how the church has always done it. Well, this is what it means to evangelize. Go knock door to door, do this, da da da. I'm showing you how, this is what you do, Right? Maybe God will call you to do that. You better make sure, though, the good works that you're prompted to do, they're prompted by your faith, not by a system that somebody handed down to you. Because you could do a whole lot of activity for God, and it is wood, hay, and straw, and it will burn. And it just won't be very effective. All of the good works of Jesus were prophetic. Jesus did not go door to door to tell people about who he is. What am I getting at? Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear him saying. So he walked through his life, and he was like, he saw the man at the pool of Bethesda. Do you know there were probably hundreds of invalids there, and he did not heal them all? He quietly walked in and was like, you want to be healed? To one guy. Because he looked around, and the Father wasn't doing all that. He was doing this. And Jesus goes, all right, we're doing this. You know the woman, is it Syrian Phoenician woman that came to him and said her, her daughter had a demon and she was not Jewish. And she says, can you please heal my daughter and get rid of this demon? And he says, oh, I was sent to the nation of Israel. He didn't respond. And then she kept pressing him and he said, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. She says, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs under the table. He's like, it's a good point. <laughs> 
And because of that response, mm, because of that response, the demon has left and your daughter is healed. There's an onus of responsibility on us, church, people. You know, sometimes God tells you no, but if you press him a little bit, he'll say yes. Hezekiah, the word of the Lord was, get your house in order. This sickness will end in your death. You're going to die. God told him that. You want to talk about, I'm sick, let's get prayer for healing. If the Lord spoke to you and said, you're going to die from this, would you want to get prayer? You'd probably, I, I probably wouldn't. I'd be like, oh, I'm done. I'm dead. Like, Hezekiah goes, oh, Lord. And he pours out his heart. He's like, please have mercy. Please heal me. And God goes, okay, I'll add 15 more years to your life. I don't know who needs to hear this tonight, but somebody needs to hear this. Because this is nowhere near what my message was going to be. So there's some people here tonight. You need to hear this. You need to, if God tells you no, you need to make sure it's a no. Paul says, I I asked him three times to take this affliction from me, this thorn in my flesh. And after the third time, God goes, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. He's like, it's a no. All right, for real. But that doesn't mean it always is. And so we need to have faith. There's an onus of responsibility. We need to ask God. God's a person. We need to interact with him as a person. It's not a machine. It's not a system of religion. Whatever is done from faith is what will last and what will have lasting value. All right. I'm getting another revelation as I'm talking about it. And the Lord's like, nope, that's enough. Move on. Get back to the sermon. All right. So the promises are important. Peter talks about it. There's an onus of responsibility on us. We need to do something to fulfill the conditions of God if we want to experience promises. And with with the promises, different promises, God shows us what the conditions are. So there's 7,487. I said last week, if we spent a minute on each one, we'd be here for over five days. So we're not going to be able to do that. And I got, I've been so pumped about the promises of God over the last few weeks. And the Lord was showing me, you're going to preach on this again. I'm like, which ones? You know, and I wanted to do a sermon where I did like the, the five greatest hits, you know, the biggest promises and just go after it. And I was kind of planning that and I was mapping it out. And the first one I had written down when I read some of the scriptures revolving around it, the Lord says, next week, the, this coming weekend, that's, that's the only one you're going to talk about. And as I studied into it and I've thought about my own life and how this has impacted me, I'm like, it's really important. And this topic touches on every facet and part of our lives. And so I want to talk to you tonight about God's promise of supply and provision. God's promise of supply and provision. In fact, I want to talk about two promises of God when it comes to supply and provision And then we're going to talk about the conditions and how to see this fulfilled in your life, in this life. Philippians 4.19, the Apostle Paul says, and this is the New King James Version, And my God shall supply 
all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now that's interesting because Paul is using the same phrase as Peter, according to his riches in glory. What are the riches of Jesus in glory? You got a rich dad. I would say filthy rich, but that feels wrong to say about God. So, holy rich. Holy, holy, holy rich. Like, Jeff Bezos, I saw a little thing this past week that he bought some super yacht that was $500 million, and it has another little yacht that's like the maintenance boat. And the maintenance boat yacht is like bigger than this room, right? I mean, you got to pay full-time staff to take care of all this. $500 million, it's a drop in a bucket for Jeff Bezos. God has more than that. He has more surplus. It's infinite. And by the way, he's God. He can make it up. If there's anything he would lack, which he doesn't, he could just make it up out of thin air. He doesn't even need money. He can just make the stuff that we need out of thin air. That's your dad. That's my dad who invites us into Holy of Holies boldly to come whenever we have needs to ask him for whatever we need. And then Jesus tells us we should always keep on praying, but he says we don't have to make it long because God already knows what we need before we come to ask. The Apostle Paul says, so he has limitless supply. That's my point. You need to hear this when a spirit of comparison and jealousy or envy comes on you. When you see God doing something for someone else and he's fulfilling all their dreams and, he, and like, like you hear these crazy faith stories where some rich guy comes up to this pastor and he's like, God told me to pay off your house. And it's just like, uh, and, and it's like, wow. And he does. And you're just like, whoa. That's a true story, by the way. It was like, wow. It wasn't me, by the way, okay? And so it was like, wow. And then you start to think, mm, man, you, start, you can start to feel competition. You can start to feel jealousy. You can start to feel envy. You can start to think in a human way and be like, man, well, that stuff doesn't happen very often. Well, I mean, God did it for him, but I mean, he's not like going to do it for everybody. So I should never ask God for something like that. And, and the truth is, it's not because scripture encourages you to think that way. It's because a spirit of competition, jealousy, envy, self-deprecation, spirit of lack, poverty, orphan spirit, those spirits cause you to think that way. Not the word of God. The apostle Paul says, my God, that is the King of kings and Lord of lords, shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Providing is God's nature. He is a provider. Abraham called him Jehovah what? Jireh. Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah the provider. That's why men in this room, heads of house in this room, you, it's part of your nature to get out and work and provide for your family because that's how you reflect the image and glory of God. One of the ways that you do. He fed Elijah by sending birds with meat. Where did the birds get the meat? I don't know, but we assume it was good quality meat. 
Jesus said the birds in Matthew 6, 24, they don't sow or reap, but God feeds the birds. And then he says, you are worth more than many birds. Look at your neighbor and tell him you are worth more than a bird. You're worth more than a bird tonight. Sorry, PETA or PETA, however you say it, but God loves people more than birds, all right? We're made in his image. We're his kid. Do you love your cat more than you love your kids? No. If you're think, if you are, if something's rising in some people tonight, like, well, I kind of, I don't know, maybe sometimes. No. That's the right answer. God loves you. You're worth more than many sparrows. And Jesus' point was this. If he feeds the birds, he's going to feed you. He is going to provide. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11, Paul takes this first promise as a foundation and then he adds to it. There's a second promise I want to show you. Remember this, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will reap generously. The context of this is giving financially to the kingdom of God, whether local church or to help other churches or to bless the poor. He says, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times. Woo! Guys, how good is this promise? He is, he is telling us what this promise is like. So that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And the context is you'll abound in every good work of generosity. And this is what he's saying. God is going to supply you to the point that you can always be generous and share with others who are in need. That's what he's saying. And if that is not crystal clear, he's about to make it crystal clear in the next few verses. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Verse 10. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. That's God, obviously, the provider, will also supply, everybody say supply. supply. Here's where it gets good. And increase. Everybody say increase. increase. He will supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness because it is righteous to be generous. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. I'm going to read that again. You will be, promise of God alert, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, the church leaders that they're donating to are going to take it and distribute it. Through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So, two promises of God. One is, he will always supply your need. He will always provide for you. Always. The second promise is, he will increase your store of seed. I'm going to translate that for us modern 21st century Americans. He will increase what's in your bank account. That's what it's talking about. For them, in a farming culture... In ancient Israel, that's 
what store of seed was. God will provide for your needs and he will increase what's in your bank account for a purpose so that you can be generous like him. You can be generous on every occasion that calls you to be generous. That's the promise of God. Okay? Now, there's a couple conditions for these promises. And I want to walk through the conditions. Because how many of you would say, I I always want to have what I need? Wow, only about 30% of you. All right, well, good luck the rest of you. I want what I need all the time. I always want to have what I need, and God promises it. There's some conditions. How many of you would say, you want an increase in your bank account? All right. Like 50% of you. All right. Some of you are being really holy right now. You're like, I'm content. I've learned what it means to be content in every situation. I'm just being honest tonight. I could use some more money. First condition to seeing God, I I do want to say this. God promises to supply your need, not your wants. It is need, not wants. So you do need to ask yourself, especially when you want to buy things or want to do things, is this a need or is this a want? And so God promises to supply your needs. But there are times in our lives when we need, when we need supply and it's not there. And those are the times that these promises are for. So condition number one, to see God always supply all of your need, is this, Matthew six thirty three. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. That's condition number one. If, I'll say it this way as a pastor. I think God's gracious. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God provides even for people who aren't seeking him, aren't seeking the kingdom first. But when you do a study throughout all of scripture, he promises to always supply the need of the righteous, of those who are seeking the kingdom of God first. This is in Matthew chapter six. And the context is Jesus starts out saying, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. And then he says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about the money is what he's saying. Why? You need to worry about, be concerned about the things of God. That's what you need to be concerned about. You be, and this is what Jesus teaches in Matthew 6. You concern yourself with the kingdom of God, and God will concern himself with meeting all your needs. That's how it works. I'm going to read it to you. Therefore, I tell you, Matthew 6, starting in 25. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. I'm going to break it down a whole lot. There are some people in this room who need to hear that. Don't worry about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Whew. Can any one of you by worrying at a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow? 
They do not labor or spend, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Or what shall we do for fun? Or how do we entertain ourselves for the Americanized version? For the pagans, in other words, people who don't know God, they're the ones who run after all these things. They're the ones who worry about all this stuff because they have to because they're orphans still and they don't have a rich dad. The pagans, people who don't know God, they run after all these things. And your heavenly father, you're not an orphan. You do have a rich dad. He loves you. He provides for even the birds. He loves you. You're more valuable than all the birds. He knows that you need them. He knows what you need. But, verse 33, in light of all that, you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given, it says, given to you as well. God says, if you will seek first his kingdom, the things you need in your life, stuff will just be given to you. Here's a good question. When did Abraham experience God as Jehovah Jireh? Was it when he was just off doing his own thing, living life how he wanted? Or was it in the moment of hardest obedience where he had been asked to sacrifice his dream and desire of the heart, which God had given him, and now he's being asked to lay it back down? And God said, now I know you love me. So it's, it's really about Abraham. It's about, is this becoming an idol? And I'm going to ask you to lay this back down, even though I'm the one who promised you and got your hopes up, and then I fulfilled it, and you're so happy, and you've been living in this dream for, all, for, for many years now, and now I'm asking you to lay it back down. And in that moment, Abraham finds provision. <laughs> when God asks you to do something hard, he promises to supply your need. When you're seeking his will and his kingdom first, he will provide for you. And man, it is a faith test. I'm just going to be on. Yes, God does test people. Absolutely. And he knows what kind of test you can handle at the moment. That's the key. He's so good in that. He's not intentionally going to put you in a moment where he knows you're going to fail. He wants you to rise to the occasion. And so he asks Abraham, he puts Abraham in this situation. And man, I had this revelation studying this week. And y'all need to hear this tonight. I wonder when the ram got caught in the thicket. It says he looks up and oh, there's a ram there. It was already caught. Now he didn't notice it, which means I'm guessing it had been caught for a while. It had struggled for a very long time. And then it's tired and it's just laying there waiting. I wonder if that ram was caught in the thicket before God even spoke to Abraham, before he even started his three-day journey. And he gets there, and he's doing the hardest thing he's ever been asked to do, and God says, stop, and he looks up, and boom, provision. I'm here to tell you tonight, 
God is already orchestrating and planning provision for you before you know you even need it. It says when the priest stepped into the river and the water stopped flowing, it said it stopped at a town some distance away and it piled up in a great heap. Now think about this. Some distance away, miles away. So God, miles away, goes, puts a supernatural dam in the river, cuts it off completely. Water keeps flowing for some time. If water flows three or four miles an hour and it was three or four miles away, water keeps flowing for an hour. Here's my point. God knew the exact moment their feet would step in the river in advance. He knew the exact time he needed to cut off the water. Gabriel, hold up. Now, water's cut off. Keeps on flowing. They're not ready yet. They're still getting ready. They're still consecrating themselves. They're marching down. Maybe they argue a little bit. I don't know. He said if we step in. Do we got to step in for it? I'm waiting. I don't know. What are we doing here? Maybe we should. Are we supposed to pray and it stops? No, he said step on in. All right, I'm stepping in. I step in and the water goes past and it stops flowing. Wow. God knows how to time everything because God exists outside of time and space. But man, I'm just telling you, time and time again in scripture and in faith callings of people, God will ask you to do things and you do not have the provision. You do not have what it takes. You are not gifted enough. You don't have the spiritual gifts. You don't have the experience. You don't have anything. And if you sit around and wait on God to fill your bank account or to fill you or to fill whatever to, for you to do what he was calling you to do, it ain't, it's not going to happen. He fills you as you go. Most often. Because he wants you to stay dependent on him. So. Many Christians do not see the provision of God and continue to live in lack because they're not truly not seeking the kingdom of God first. There's many examples of this in scripture. The Israelites in the wilderness, miraculous, manna from heaven, water from the rock, but they are doing the will of God. They have left Egypt. You know, they burned the proverbial ships. There is no going back. And that's when, and they have nothing, and it's a desert, and God brings miraculous provision because they're seeking his face. They're doing his will. Elijah is fed by the birds. He's fed by a poor widow who has nothing, and God miraculously gives her more oil, and, and, and she feeds him. Why? Because he gave a hard word to Ahab and said it's not going to rain for three years. I've seen many good Christian men who have good jobs, who get paid overtime. I've seen this happen time and time again in this community and beyond. Who work themselves to death seven days a week to get the overtime to, and oh, I'm providing for my family. You know, scripture says if you don't provide for your family, you've denied the face you're worth than an unbeliever. And yet they end up exhausted. They end up burned out. And, and then they look at their finances. I've had some of them tell me, and then we're not ahead. I'm making more money than I've ever made. Where's it all go? You know why? Because they're not seeking the kingdom first. They're not leading their families to value the Sabbath and to be involved in church, which is a big deal to God. 
And so God's blessing is not, yeah, you're working harder than ever and God's blessing isn't on it. And so you're not getting ahead. I've seen that happen time and time again. Proverbs 10, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it. The Berean Study Bible, Reader's Bible, says it this way, the blessing of the Lord enriches and he adds no sorrow to it. So there's a paradox in scripture. God calls us to work. You gotta take the full counsel of the word of God, right? So if a man shall not work, he shall not eat. That's scripture. That's not like some American proverb. They used it in the colonies because people weren't working and then nobody was getting food. They were wanting welfare already back then, you know, at Plymouth Rock. And they're like, we ain't doing this. The word says, if a man shall not work, he shall not eat. That's the word. Work is holy. It's pre-fall. People need to work or they're going to fall into purpose. People who don't work get, get infested and, and oppressed by demons of purposelessness and despair and hopelessness because they're, they're, they know they're not doing something that they're meant to do. And so we're called to work, right? But sometimes, especially in America, oh my goodness, especially in America, we take the good scriptures like, if a man shall not work, he shall not eat. If you don't provide for your family, you deny the face of work, worse than a believer. And we use them to be Americans. And I'm going to work 24-7, and I'm going to make a million, and I'm going to be a self-made man. To, and we use the scriptures to fuel my American dream. And we need to remember some other scriptures tonight. How about Psalm 127? I'm going to tell you a little story. I like to work. America's full of opportunity. We were in ministry way back in Michigan over 10 years ago. This is probably 12. This is 2010, so it was 13 years ago. And my salary was small, and we were living on it. And we needed more money. And I was like, well, I'm going to make some stuff happen because I'm a man and I'm going to carpe diem this thing. All right. I'm going to grab this bull by the horns. Right. And I'm going to use every <laughs> analogy that we use in America and I'm going to do it. And I had a, I might as well do something I enjoy. Right. And so I had this thing I enjoy that I thought, man, if I can do this the right way and if I work at this, I could make money at it. And, and I will never compromise the will of God in my life and I'll, his calling. But it's, it's going to be a side hustle, all right? I'm going to do this side hustle. And, and I was reading books about the side hustle. And the books were saying, if you want to make money at this, you need to give it your all. You need to work at it. It's work. I know it seems fun when you're doing it, but it's work, all right? And so I was really inspired in this one moment. And I was like, all right, I, I'm getting a plan. I'm getting, a, I'm getting some goals and I'm going to work at this. And this was my plan. I'm going to get up every day at 5 a.m. I'm going to spend my time with the Lord because he's first. And then I'm going to spend two hours every morning on my side hustle, just busting it, working, working at this. And then I'm going to start my normal work day and then, you know, do the rest of the day and be with the family in the evening and all that. I'm going to do this. I was so pumped. I was so inspired. The first morning I get up, my devotions are pre-planned. It's a reading program, right? My devotion that day was Psalm 127, and I want to read it to you. Verses 1 and 2, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. This is the Lord speaking to me that morning at 5 a.m. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For he grants sleep to those he loves. And I was like, 
are you trying to tell me to go back to bed? Because <laughs> I'd really like to, but that's my flesh. I deny myself, and I'm going to work hard. And I just sat there, and I was like, what is this? And there's a footnote. It says, for he grants sleep to those he loves. And there's one of those little footnote things in my Bible, and I look down. This has become one of my favorite verses in Scripture, and I say it all the time. Another way you can translate it, and I actually think it's a better translation, for even while they sleep, he provides for those he loves. And when I saw that translation, the, the Holy Spirit spoke to me very clearly in that moment. And he says, this is not my plan. I do not want you to work hard at this. Because if you work hard at this, and if you make it, and if you achieve this, and if you make money at it, guess who gets the glory? And when you're telling young people who want to do it and make money at it, what are you going to tell them? I worked hard. I busted my rump. You know, I, I went after it. I got up at 5 a.m. every day. It was raining or snowing. I was up at 5 a.m. And I was, oh, so hard for a decade, but I did it. And I'm awesome. And I'm the man. And you can do it too. So buy my program and I'll make even more money, you know. And so <laughs> that's what they're doing now, right? And the Lord's like, if you actually succeed, you'll get the glory. I want you to just do your normal work for me. And when the time is right, I'm going to do this. Just by you doing that as you would normally do it, as you always have. I'm going to do it. And then who gets the glory? Then it's not, I got up at 5 a.m. every Then it goes, yeah, I know. It's, uh, see, I've got this dad. And he loves me. And this is a desire of my heart, and it's a dream, and I've always kind of done it myself, and what do you know? Then he did this. He opened this door, and now it helps provide for my family. It's pretty awesome. But it's all God, and I just waited on him. And so here's what the Lord says. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. It's a double yoke. He does the heavy lifting. So he has work for us to do, but he carries the majority of the burden. That's why his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And if you find that your life or your work or your calling is getting hard, it's probably because you're pulling against or away from the yoke of Jesus and you're getting into some things that you're not meant to be doing. It's called striving. So in vain, you rise early and stay up late, toiling extra hard for food to eat. I'm not saying don't work hard in a season where you need hard work. And by the way, my wife and I have had a few seasons where we're like, we're just gonna have to work extra hard in the season to make some extra money to pay for some stuff. And the Lord's blessing was on that. So there are those seasons. But I'm saying it's, it's all prophetic. It's all what are you doing, God? It's all what do you want me to be doing? And there will be seasons where he's like, no, you need to work, you need to work 12 hours a day for the next six months. Yeah, go for it. This is me. Go for it. And then there's other times where he's like, go back to bed. Go back to bed. Trust me. You have enough already. I had a friend who worked in Cincinnati one time with a bunch of lawyers and doctors down there. He said, it's crazy. These guys are, they work seven days a week. They're working 12-hour days. They have these mansions. They have these cars. And they're never even in them because they're working, killing themselves. They have families and they're not enjoying them because they're working. Sabbath, the weekend, was God's idea. Saturday, Sabbath. Do you know why we have Sunday off? Because it's the Lord's day. 
The weekend was God's idea. Three weeks off a year for Israelite men in the, in the Old Testament. Three, week, three one-week vacations every year. And there's so many scriptures around all that going, God goes, trust me, nobody's going to get into your fields. Trust me, you're still going to have food. And then in the seventh year, take the whole year off of farming. And I'll provide so much in the sixth year, you can take the seventh year off. Trust me, you'll, when that sixth year comes, you're going to have enough. Trust me. And so there are times God says, work hard. And then there are times he goes, you need to be content. And trust me, you actually have what you need. And what you feel like you don't have is actually you striving for things that you don't need. There's a lot of that going on in America. So seek the kingdom first. How do you do that practically? Live for Jesus 24-7, 365, first. So the principle of priority is all throughout scripture. The first fruits in your giving. Give to God first, then live off the rest. Give him the first time of your day. When you wake up, I'm telling you, the first thing every day, spend time with God in the scriptures in prayer. And then go on. And then spend more time with him at noon. And then spend more time with him in the evening. It's not one. The scriptures say seven times a day I'll praise you. It's like, I'm going to take a praise break seven times a day to tell God how good he is. And so... Spending time with God yourself daily. Leading your family, if you have a family. Leading them to be with God daily. So if you have kids, daily devotions with the kids. Pray with your kids every night. Read them a Bible story and then say prayers and go to bed. Say a prayer for them before they walk out the door every day if they're going out to school. Make church a priority and make sure they're attending and being involved. That's what it looks like as a family, as, as a leader of a family, to, make, to seek the kingdom first. We're making God a priority in this household. We're not compromising. And then you need to be thinking about, okay, you have a vocation, but that vocation is your ministry. So how can you consistently be sharing faith, praying for, shepherding and pastoring the people that you work with or the people that you're around every day? Hey, how's your life doing? Cool. How can I be praying for you? Cool. Hey, I'm praying for you. Like, hey, you want to come to church with me? Like constantly sharing faith, constantly praying for the people in your life. And then if, as God calls you to do certain things, and he will, specific things, prioritizing those things over and above the stuff you want to do first. That's what it looks like to seek the kingdom first. God's second promise is of Increased provision. And there's a condition for that increased provision. He says you, he will meet, supply your needs, and he will increase so that you can be generous on every occasion. If you want to see God increase your supply of seed, <laughs> you need to start being a generous person. That's the second condition. You are already generous. And this is the way we usually think about it. If God would increase my bank account, then I would start being generous. That is not how it works. And the reason that's not how it works is because God is really smart. God, you know, God is the consummate artist. He created everything, and it's beautiful, right? He's the consummate scientist. He planned out how DNA works and all the things that have to do with science in our world. 
chemicals and how they interact and create us and other things. It's amazing. God thought of all that. God is also the consummate businessman. He's as innocent as a dove and he's as shrewd as a snake. You know, the devil is cunning, but God's cunning-er. And so what, why am I saying all that? God knows how to get a good return on his investment. So when God, who has unlimited resources, it'd be like if your dad is Warren Buffett. And some of you young people are like, Who's, is that the guy that died that sang that song? It's like, no, that's Jimmy Buffett. <sighs> Margaritaville? No. It'd be like if your dad was Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos. Unlimited wealth. And he has a lot of kids. And he's looking for who he's going to invest in. Who's he going to invest in? The one who's putting to work what they've already been given. If I give it to this kid who's being lazy and playing video games all, all day, they're going to waste it. They're going to squander it. They're never generous. They don't think about others. They don't bless others. They don't give to others. They're just going to use it all on them. And they, I've, I'm a good dad. They already have everything they need, so they don't need more. Oh, this person keeps not having enough because every time I give them stuff, they go give it away to everybody else. And he's like, all right, I like that because God's generous. It's also part of his nature. For God so loved the world, he gave. And so when he sees us being generous, he goes, I like that. And by the way, that's part of how I fund kingdom ministry through their faith. He just doesn't make up dollar bills and rain them down out of the sky, right? Most of the time, most of the time. Yes, Lord, do it. All right. Most of the time, he works through our faith. I remember a real well-known pastor in America saying, you know, casting this huge vision. They wanted to start like three more churches. They want to do all this stuff. It was going to cost millions of dollars. And he goes, can you believe it? He's like, God's already given us the money. He had a church of thousands of people. He's like, God's already given us the money. Can you believe it? And the church is like, really? He's like, yeah. And it's in your bank accounts. And all you have to do is give it. And we can do this. This is amazing. The guy had a lot of trust built with that church to be able to say that. But that's usually how God works. So when he sees you being generous, he's like, that's like me. They're being like Jesus. They're storing up treasure in heaven. They care about people. I like that. I'm going to increase their bank account so that they can be more generous. That's God's heart. That's how it works. He's looking for faithful stewards What's the best way to get an increase in anointing? What's the best way to get more spiritual gifts? Be faithful with the ones you've been given. I remember early on in this church, we, we were, I would say we were charismatic. We were open to the Holy Spirit. We just hadn't experienced a whole lot. And I remember going to these conferences and I remember hearing about if you're a pastor, you need to lead your people in this way and you need to do this so that spiritual gifts are operating in the church. And I remember thinking like, I don't even have those gifts. I don't even know how to do that. I don't know how, I've never prayed impartation over anybody. Don't you have to like receive an impartation to be able to give an impartation? Like, I don't even know how all this works. And I would get prayed over time and time again and nothing would happen. I'd be frustrated. I'm like, God, zap me. Knock me back on my butt. I want to be out for three hours. I want to get up speaking in tongues. I want to have the visions. I want to see the angels, right? People pray over me, bless you. Pray the impartation. I'll be like, thank you. You know, go back and sit down. But I had to make a choice where it was like, I guess I have everything I need that God wants me to have right now to do everything he's called me to do. 
So I guess I'm going to have to take the few spiritual gifts I have and I'm going to have to put them to work. And then as we've been doing that as a church family, God's going, they're doing stuff with their gifts. And they're asking for more. Oh, you're about to get a whole lot more. (laughs) And then we put that into work because the gifts aren't for us. They're for people. They're to bless the world. They're to bless others. So seek the kingdom first and then you are being generous. And when God sees that, he goes, I'm going to bless that. So if you want to experience God's supply, start seeking the kingdom first. And here's the deal. I don't have time to pray because I'm working so much. And I don't have what I need. What if God's asking you to trust him, you start praying more, and all of a sudden, you start making more at work. So you actually get to work less and have what you need because you made prayer a priority. Do you think God is able to do that? Oh, he's definitely able. I don't have time to be involved at church or even go to church because I have to work so much because I don't have what I need. What if you make a decision of faith saying, God, I'm trusting you. I'm going to make time for a church family. And I'm going to be there and I'm going to get involved. And whatever work I do, and I'm still going to work hard, but I'm going to say it's going to go around this. And God, I'm going to trust you. You You do that and you see what he does. You watch what he does. Man, I do not have what I need in my finances. And if you pray about that, in the kingdom, the kingdom math is different. How many of you know kingdom math is different? Five loaves and two fishes feed 5,000 people. Kingdom math is different. So in the kingdom, we have all these needs. What should we do? Start giving. Start being generous. When we were starting our capital campaign a few years ago, I said, I don't want us to use, lose our heart of generosity. And so we picked some ministries and churches that have blessed us. And as we've went through that, we've given to them to bless them. We need money, so we're going to give because it's the kingdom. Because God doesn't want us to lose our heart of generosity. Malachi chapter 3 It's a famous passage on this topic for good reason. Because Jesus, when he was tempted by Satan, Satan quoted Psalm 91 and said, throw yourself off the temple. If you're really the son of God, if you say he loves you so much, his own word says he'll catch you, send angels to catch you. You won't strike your foot on a stone. And Jesus goes, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So it's not good to test God and be like, well, I'll believe in you if you give me a million dollars. Oh, you didn't do it, so I don't believe in you, right? It's not good to test God in that way. That's wrong. So Jesus was saying that. But there's one exception to testing God, and God himself gives the exception in Malachi chapter 3. And it's in regard to your finances. Ever since the time of your ancestors, God says, you've turned away from my decrees and not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me, God says. Bring the whole tithe, which was 10% of their finances, into the storehouse So that there may be food in my house. 
Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. When you read through the Old Testament, especially in the book of Nehemiah, we see it and we see it other places. When the people stopped giving to the Levites, to the Lord's house, to the synagogue, so to speak, the Levites, especially in the story of Nehemiah, we see this explicitly. They go, we can't work. We can't live. We can't feed our families if you're not tithing. So we go out to work. In the, they go to other jobs. So the ministry of the word of God stops because people weren't giving to fund the ministry. Well, because the ministry stops, then people stop living for God because nobody's preaching the word. So they're not making God a priority. And it all falls apart. And Nehemiah left for a few years and he came back and he goes, what are you guys doing? You stopped tithing. And then the priests quit because they had to to provide for themselves. So what did he do to restore revival in the land? Start giving financially to the house of God. Now the priests, okay, priests, quit your jobs and come back and start working and preaching the word again and doing the sacrifices and all the works of ministry. And he gets it going again. And so God's upset about this because it happens over and over. And he says, you're not bringing in the full tithe. The full tithe is 10%. He says, do that. And he says, test me in it and see if I will not pour out so much blessing that you won't have room enough to store it. So that's a test. God's inviting you. He invites you to test him in one way. And it's trusting him with your finances. You want his provision? Trust him. You want his supply? Seek the kingdom first. You want to see an increase? Start being generous now before the increase. That's how it works. I have not once heard a testimony of somebody going, man, God gave me a better job. God increased my giving, my uh, finances so much. And then I, I started being able to tithe pastor. Isn't that great? I've never heard one story like that. Do you know how many dozens I've heard about, it was really hard. We trusted God. We started tithing. We started giving. And oh my goodness, we got the promotion. We got checks in the mail that we didn't expect. I had one friend here who it, they had just recently saved. They, I preached about giving at one point several years ago. And they were like, okay, this is the next step for us. And they said, we've never given. They were scared to do it. And they tithed. And they told me about it. They're like, we tithe for the first time. I'm like, what? I'm proud of you guys. It's so awesome. You know, it's amazing. The next week. So this was a weekend, right? This is like Sunday. The following week at work, husband gets a promotion that he was not expecting. The promotion comes with an increase in pay. The increase in pay was so substantial that they had committed to give a full tithe, which was hundreds of dollars a month. The increase in pay was more than their tithe. So they could get, still give the tithe they had already started to give. And they were bringing, still bringing home more income. And he told me this the next week. And he's rejoicing. He's like, can you believe this happened? He's telling me. And I just went, huh. God just paid you to tithe. He's like, what? I'm like, you started tithing. You thought you were going to go without this hundreds of dollars, but this promotion from God, which he said, this was the Lord. This was totally unexpected. It's like, it's amazing. It was so much that you're making more money because you started tithing. You're bringing home more. Isn't that amazing? That's how it works. I've heard dozens of stories like that. My wife and I have experienced God's provision many times in miraculous ways, beautiful ways. 
And I believe, there, and, and it, it honestly happens regularly in our lives. And I believe it's because we've always been committed to tithing. It just, it just, he's always providing. He's always providing. One several years ago stands out. And I was writing this story in my notes this week. And I got super emotional. Because you kind of forget about the stories of God sometimes. And man, it was just such a blessing to remember this this week. So several years ago, um, we needed some money. Let's just cut to the chase here, right? Um, my car broke down, and uh, I got it looked at by a, a mechanic. He said it needed the whole engine needed replaced. And, of course, that's going to be thousands of dollars. And then you're in that debate of, do I fix this, or do I give it to the junkyard and start with something new, right? Or new used car for us, right? And I'm in that debate, you know, because if I fix it, it could just break it down again. And you're going through that whole thing. And I need wisdom. I need godly counsel. So I asked a friend at church who he's not a mechanic as a profession, but I knew he works on cars a lot. I'm like, can I just ask your advice? This happened to us. What, what would you do? Would you give this car up now or would you fix it and keep using it? And he goes, huh, let me, let me check on a few things. I'm like, all right. He gets back to me. He goes, I fix cars a lot on my spare time and I... I found an engine for your car and um, the mechanic shop was quoting us like thousands of dollars. He's like, the engine is used, but it's very low mileage. It's $1,300 and I'll fix it for you for free if you just bring your car to my house. And I was like, and I'm thinking, we don't have an extra $1,300, but that's way cheaper. And this just got a lot more simple, right? And so we'll figure it out, but let's do that. Okay, so I'm like, wow, thank you. So, so by the way, this is miracle number one in this story, right? Somebody randomly from church, I was not looking for this. I had no idea he would do this. I was asking his advice as a man of God. He says, I'll do this for you. I'm like, cool. So we get the car to him. He starts working on buying the engine and, and we're starting to pray like we don't have the extra money, right, to spare in this season. So we're praying about how are we gonna pay just the $1,300? It was, I don't know, a week or two that he has our car. In that time, while he has the vehicle, friends of ours from church came to us. It was a, a young married couple. And they said, hey, we need to talk to you. Can we meet with you? Now, when people, I've learned to say, what about? Because it's always ominous and it's always bad, all right? And so, not always, sorry. But most of the time it is. <laughs> and and uh, so I didn't ask. We were just like, sure, let's meet. I'm honestly expecting our marriage is falling apart or like, you know, something horrible. You just get used to it, right? And so I'm just like, well, we'll just deal with it. It's fine. So we said today, we meet with them and they tell us this story. The wife had had a dream recently. It was about a month prior. And in the dream, there was all this white stuff all over the ground. She said, I knew it was like manna from heaven. But when I picked it up, it was white, but it was dollar bills. And me and my husband were picking up the money. And when we got done, we collected it. It was a specific amount, and we took it to you and your wife, and we gave it to you. And I told my husband, and it was a significant amount of money. And so they did not just immediately do it because they're like, let's pray about this. That's a lot of money. And so they were praying on it. In that month they were praying on it, they both had job changes, and those job changes affected their finances, and they ended up with a surplus that they were not expecting. The surplus was the same exact amount that was in the dream. Do you know what the surplus was, which was the exact amount in the dream? It was $1,300, and they said, so we felt led to give you $1,300. Here's a check, and that's why we wanted to meet, and we went, oh. <laughs> they had no idea about the car situation. 
no idea. And we're like, you don't even know. You don't even know. And so we tell them about the car situation. And they're like, whoa, God's so cool. God is planning provision before you need it. She had that dream before our car broke down. He's planning the provision before you need it. But that's not all. Because we got, we, we sent that money to that mechanic. He paid for the stuff. He brought the car to church. And he dropped it off on, a, he just brought it to church, gave it to me on a Sunday. He's like, hey, I got all done. He said, hey, by the way, I did have to buy this one extra part. It was $100. And I go, oh, okay. And I'm thinking, it's no big deal, man. We can get 100 bucks. Like here, you know, we'll figure it out. I was like, I'll get it to you. He says, okay. We have church that day. Church is over. I'm praying with some people. I'm talking with some people. Everybody's leaving. I was talking to one friend who was left, the last guy in the building other than me. He says, bye, he's leaving. And I'm finally alone. And I'm like, oh yeah, I got my car back today. And I'm like, oh God, you're so good. You paid for these repairs. This is just such a cool story. I'm just so in awe. But man, it just kind of bugged me, that little extra. But there was this one thing. And it was $100. Now, I'm trying to be humble, right? I'm trying to be like, you covered 1300 God. That's all. I, I don't even need to worry about, you know, we'll, we'll get the money. It's no big deal. But it just bothered me. I was like, you provided all this, and yet there was this little thing at the end. And I'm going to be totally transparent and say, I'm also a preacher, and I also knew I'm going to be telling this story one day, and it just doesn't quite tell as good when there's this one extra thing for 100 bucks. I'm like, man. And I was honestly praying about it. I was like, Lord, what's, what? I'm trying to make sense of all this. I know this was you. I know it. But what's up with this extra little thing? While I'm thinking and praying about that, this man in our church comes back in the building. And I go, oh, what's up? Did you forget something? And he goes, I tell you what. He said, as soon as I walked away from you, I started feeling like I was supposed to give you something. And he said, by the time I got to my car, it was so strong, I couldn't take it. And I was like, okay, Lord, I'll go back in. And he comes back in and he goes, so I just, I got to give you this. And he puts it in my hand. And he does this, people are weird when they, you know, so they puts it in my hand, he curls it. He's like, all right, this is for you. I'm like, okay, man. And he like walks away and I'm just like, what was that all about? Goes out the door and I look down and do you know what's in my hand? A $100 bill. And the Holy Spirit's like, I told you, I got this. I was blown away. God will supply all your needs. If you will seek the kingdom first. And if you will be generous, oh my goodness. He's going to increase your capacity. So you can always be generous on every occasion. That's how the kingdom works. I love how Mark Batterson says it. You will go further on 90% with God than on 100% by yourself. And I believe that with all my heart. And that story I told you, my wife and I, we have several stories like that in our lives of God providing in miraculous ways. People in this church, there are many dozens and dozens of stories like that. When people choose to be generous and they're seeking the kingdom first, God promises to supply your needs. If you'll seek his kingdom first 
and you'll commit to being a generous person.